Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years, it takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real, true wealth. To find out more about us and join our syndicate on AngelList, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, welcome back to The Syndicate, the podcast where we get the best angel investors and VCs in the world. Dun, dun, dun. So we got Zach Koalis on the line today. Zach, I'm sure a lot of you guys know, he's hit a unicorn. He's pretty big in the angel scene. He's pretty big in the angel list scene. Thanks for coming today, Zach. Oh yeah, my pleasure. So let's jump back a little bit. You've done quite a bit, but how did you get into the startup world? So I like to say that I've never had a real job. And my hope is I can say that when I'm dead. So I've been an entrepreneur my whole life. Started my first sort of hustle slash, you know, you couldn't really call it a company, but certainly a hustle at the Olympics when I was 16. And then ended up running that at four different Olympics. You know, great way as a kid to make a bunch of money and go to the Olympics and, you know, get to see the world. And then kind of use some of the capital from that to get into sort of the house flipping business. So, you know, fixed up some old houses and sold them off back in the property bubble, uh, 2000 to 2005. And about that time, I started with my sister, uh, the first online voter registration and absentee ballot solution. So basically tools to help people vote over the internet back in 2002, which um, at the time seemed like it was like super obvious and it should have happened long before that. But it was, you know, in retrospect, we were very early in getting into sort of the voting and elect election space back in 2002. And that was a nonprofit that uh, we got Pew Trusts and a bunch of other people to, to fund. And so that sort of got me excited about technology. I mean, seeing we worked with about half a million college students across the country. And being able to do that on a shoestring was just it was like, oh, my God, there's like the scale of technology is super exciting. And so uh, after grad school in 2005, I loaded up my car drove across the country to San Francisco, slept on a buddy's couch for a month, went to Burning Man and just sort of crashed my way into the tech scene. And shortly thereafter, founded Trigit, which was my last company, which was an online advertising technology company. You had some pretty chill parents, huh? <laughs> yeah, my parents are super cool. So you're, you're a kid, you get at the Olympics and you start a business. What did you learn hustling at the Olympics? What were you doing? Anything that you've taken today? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I mean, a ton, right? I mean, as a 16 year old, you know, making thousands of dollars a day, you know, stuffing stacks of 20s into your pocket, you feel pretty awesome. But I learned really, really quickly that it's all about being in the right place at the right time, both in terms of like, you know, at, I ran that business to four Olympics and some Olympics were amazing and some of them were terrible. So the, the actual market mattered, you know, which, which Olympics you were at really mattered in terms of if you were making money or not. But also just sort of like your location, you know, I, you know, at the Athens games, you know, what you, what we learned, what we saw was that all of the people who were in the businesses we were in, we had a couple lines of businesses by that point, but they all kind of congregated around each other and sort of that drove down sort of volumes and margin. And by identifying places where we could do, where we could work, where there didn't, where it wasn't a lot of competition, we just made, you know, orders of magnitude more money. And that just that lesson stuck with me. It's like when I'm in a market where I see a whole bunch of other people doing the same thing standing around next to me, 
I just like I get an itch. I have to run immediately to some other part of the market because it's just you know competition sucks and it's just so brutal. Uh, I just I get really scared about it. So that's you know for every company I work with, I'm just like, look, you've got to be differentiated. You have to have an offering that nobody else has. Otherwise, like I really don't want to be involved because yeah. And I've been on the receiving end of in my last company, Trigot. I was on the receiving end of that. We were one of the first sort of demand side platforms. You know, we got there early and raised a lot of money to do it, and then suddenly we're facing you know, you know, half a dozen competitors who had collectively raised over a hundred million bucks. And you know, seeing the effect of competition was just just really brutal, and experiencing it was really brutal. So yeah, now it's <laughs> run if I see competition. I want I want unique, clean blue water spaces. So you raised about 18 with Trigit, all, all mm-hmm. in told. How does that, that was your first real big, big time business where you, yep. you were running it. It's a tech company. You're hiring people. What was yep. the experience like? Uh, I mean, we could talk for hours about Trigit. Started in 2005 and sold it in 2015. Went through seven pivots in the early years as I was kind of learning the business. Some of those pivots were great. At one point, we had 10,000 publishers and sort of a small ad network. Some of those pivots were terrible because we, you know, I came up with dumb ideas and somehow convinced my team we should try them. But we built it up at the end to about 30 million in revenue, uh, about 60 employees. So got to some relatively good scale. We were servicing Walmart, Best Buy, Home Depot, TripAdvisor, Vistaprint, Booking.com, you know, big global advertisers all over the world. So it was, you know, it got pretty heady at one point. It felt like we were, we had the right things going and we were, we were, we felt like we were on track to do hundreds of millions in revenue. Facebook at the end decided they wanted that, that business for themselves, which is, you know, a great lesson came out of that, which is don't build on somebody else's platform. If you, if you hope to retain any equity value, which, you know, that was, that was pretty brutal. But yeah, I mean, the lessons from Trigget were, were endless, but, um, you know, to learn how to build, grow, operate, a company is, you know, you, I don't think you can do this job as an investor unless you, you learn that one way or another. And you learned that, especially on the pivot side. What do you tell startups when you're working with them now via your syndicate, just as an advisor, whatever? You know, honestly, I hate pivots. Like, I, I think basically pivots are, are the point of searching for product market fit. And they're incredibly inefficient. They're time consuming. They're painful. And at the point that you basically have to pivot, it means you made a mistake. It means you thought you had product market fit and you didn't get there. You know, I really stress sort of the four steps to the epiphany sort of uh, market development approach that Steve Blank and others have really been done a good job advocating, which is like a startup is a process of discovering product market fit. And you should, you should never have to pivot because you're, you're, you're constantly in the beginning, you're searching for that first indication, that first evidence that you've found it. And then basically, you're slowly, gradually building that evidence and establishing more, more conviction that you've found it. And, that, and, and I think if you do that correctly, you should never have to pivot because you've, you've figured that out slowly and carefully over time. Whereas I kind of in the early years of Trigit would sort of like be like, oh, hallelujah, I found the next big idea. Let's dive into it. And we would just sort of jump out of what we were doing and we'd jump into something new. I don't think that's the right approach in retrospect. So, you know, I think of all the companies that I've invested in, I don't think a single one of them has pivoted. Uh, and my hope is that that remains the case. You know, I, I think, yeah, 
don't know if that's a great answer. It's kind of rambly, but like, I, I do believe in really finding that sort of that point in the market where you've got it figured out and then just slowly, slowly iterating your way closer and closer and closer to basically the final offering that you're, or not, there's never really a final offering, but to, to the, to the, the true point of product market fit. When you get someone smart, the goal is just to get them to ramble. Eventually great stuff comes out. <laughs> so, so model, moral of the story, don't pivot unless you absolutely have to. No, no, no. I don't think that's the point. I have no problem pivoting at the point that you have to pivot. You have to pivot. That's just the nature of the beast. The moral of the story is do your product development carefully in a disciplined way early on in the development of the business so that you never have to pivot because you're just, you're basically like a heat seeking missile where you don't turn hard, but you just slowly make gradual changes, gradual adoptions to your business to follow the business, the customer and product market fit. And you're, you're so constantly basically establishing evidence and analyzing that evidence, internalizing that evidence and slowly changing your product. Just you're, you're doing that in such a constant way that if you look from a distance, it may look like a pivot because it, you know, the business is turning from a distance. But if you look in up close, it's just slow incremental change, evolution and development. At the point you have to make a hard turn, like a pivot, you fucked up. You like... I, I just think that like you really failed in that product development sort of discipline. And I, I, I think you fucked up if you have to do that. At that point, should startups return the money to investors or should they try to salvage? Mm. Uh, I, look, I think returning money to investors is a cop out. I think there's always hope. There's always a future. There's always a place to go. Um, at the point that you basically quit and you return money to investors, it means you've quit as an entrepreneur. And I think one of the most important sort of um, one of the important, most important characteristics of an entrepreneur is that they can, they can get punched in the face all day long, every day, wake up getting punched in the face, go through the brutality of that job, which is it, is it is one of the most brutal jobs in the world, and still keep going. And I think in order to have that level of grit and perseverance, you kind of have to like, you kind of have to just believe that it's impossible to quit. Like it's just, you can't, you can't believe in quitting because if you believe in quitting, you're probably going to quit well before you should. And you're certainly not going to be able to take the sort of constant brutality of the job. And so I just think any entrepreneur that constitutionally could return their money to the investors is probably not an entrepreneur I would want to back because I, I, just, I just assume the entrepreneurs I'm investing in are just like, they're going to go through hell and high water to get there. And, you know, so yeah, they'll never quit. <laughs> Often when they're wrong and uh, but they'll just never quit. They'll just keep going. Yeah. It's a great Rocky quote. It's not about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. So you, I, I, I like to say that being an entrepreneur is kind of like being in a dark alley with Mike Tyson. And in one hand, he has an ice cream cone. And the other hand, he has, he has his left. And you never know which one's going to hit you in the mouth in any given moment. So it's like the swings. You have massive joys and then you just get pulverized. And then you have more massive joys than... Oh my God. It's, it's so hard. Brutal. So you exit the business. I imagine you made some money from that. It, it sounds like you had a decent sized business at that point. What do you do next? I didn't know what to do. I was, I was going through a really rough period personally. And, and I mean, it was just, you know, 10 years of trying to run a company and trying to make it work. It kind of, it, it constrains context. Like to be an entrepreneur, you have to be able to crash through brick walls. Like it's just the nature of the job. And in order to crash through a brick wall, you have to be incredibly focused on 
that one little point in the wall that you're going to throw all your energy at and hope to break through. And that, that focus is useful as an entrepreneur, but it, it constrains your context. You don't see the world around you. You don't see anything. You just see the wall in front of you and everything is about getting through that wall. And, you know, when you, when you come out of that, that sort of that battle where all you had to do is get to the wall and suddenly there's just a wide open world around you, it's incredibly disconcerting. It's sort of, it's a, it's, it's a traumatic moment. And it, you know, honestly, like for that first year, I don't, I honestly don't remember what I did. I mean, I invested and I did a bunch of turns out in retrospect, turned out to be a bunch of good investments that year. But really, otherwise, I was just kind of breathing and recuperating. And I think that's what was really lucky was that, you know, one of the companies I had been advising from the very beginning when it was four people was Branch Metrics. And right as I was selling Trigget, they were doing their A. And I was like, I had heard about this whole, whole Angelist Syndicate thing. So I said, hey, guys, you know, it was a $15 million round that NEA was leading. I was like, hey, can I get a 200K allocation and put it up on AngelList? And thankfully, the CEO said, sure. And, you know, I put it up on AngelList and it was gone in, you know, 12 hours. And I was like, oh, this, this is pretty cool. This is really exciting. And so thankfully, that sort of opportunity fell into my lap uh, as I was sort of in this sort of dazed and confused state post-Trigget. And so I just sort of ran around talking to companies, trying to figure out if I wanted to start something, meeting with friends, just kind of playing pretend VC that year and got lucky enough to, to stumble into Cruise, to stumble into OneSignal, a company called Entropy, which is doing really well, a company called Zeotap, uh, which uh, I think is doing really well. And, you know, I syndicated all of those and, you know, got lucky to sort of like, you know, bumble and stumble my way into running in a syndicate and being an investor uh, during that period where I was very much sort of <laughs> dazed and confused. It's funny. Studies have shown that people that think of themselves as lucky are more likely to find money on the ground than people that aren't because they're out there, they're <laughs> looking for opportunities. And when there's an opportunity, you pick up that fucking money and you run with it. And, <laughs> and it sounds, it sound, like yeah, it sounds like, it sounds like that's you, 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 you're there, you've got the winner type mindset and then you just kind of get into this world. You start, is Branch a unicorn, by the way? I saw they, they just had a huge um, round. No, the latest valuation is not over a billion. They raised about 60 million from Andy Rubin, who was the guy who invented Android, you know, the most, and, and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, basically the god of mobile. I mean, he's, He's been, he invented uh, the sidekick, he started a company called Danger. I mean, the guy is like a genius in mobile. And so when they, they, they were like, hey, Zach, Andy Rubin wants to lead this round. I got so excited. And to have him on board is really awesome. But so he and myself and a bunch of other people put about 60 million in, but we're not yet, we're not yet at a billion. But okay. that is a multi billion dollar company, no question about it. So how do you pick the winners? Is, I know you're just going to say luck, but eventually it's going to come down to some kind of mindset thing with a little bit of gut. So talk about that. Talk about what goes through your head. I don't think picking winners is luck. I, I don't think so at all. I think that there's real alpha in this business. If you look at basically successful venture investors, there's, you know, there's a number of people who just have amazing records and they can do it over and over again. Like you look at Mamoon who just went over to run KP. I mean, that guy, like just a god, right? I mean, Box and Slack. And uh, what else did he use in a uh, Yammer? I mean, the guy is like just unstoppable. And, you know, you look at, you know, or you look at John Doerr, he had an amazing run. Mike Moritz had an amazing run. I mean, there's just a, a number of investors who basically can just do it over and over and over again. 
So yeah, I, I believe that alpha is there in this business, certainly much more than in public markets. Picking winners is, I don't, I don't think I could distill it into an hour, let alone a day. I mean, it's, or even a paragraph here, but I look for, I look for entrepreneurs who I feel just from a pure pattern recognition perspective that I'm like, having, you know, worked with entrepreneurs my whole life, having been an entrepreneur my whole life, I feel like I sort of like can be like, oh, I, I like, you know, this person, I think she's got it, or I don't think he has it. I think, and that's very intuitive. You know, there's, there's an analytical component to it a little bit, but it's, it's much more pattern recognition and an intuitive feel for the entrepreneur. Markets, uh, you know, it, you know, you really want to look for, op- I don't, I think markets is the wrong word because market implies some sort of, you know, transaction volume that's already incurring at a certain scale. And then oftentimes these opportunities are new markets or they're, they're places where the money isn't flowing yet, but the money will flow. But, but I think it's like, it's about opportunities. It's like, okay, if this thing works, can they make hundreds of millions or billions of dollars at scale? You know, looking for those big, big opportunities is super important. Differentiated approaches. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not really... I'm not great at investing in companies where it's about execution, where it's, you know, there's 10 companies doing the same thing and this company is going to execute better. I much prefer like contrarian approaches, new and different ways to think about an opportunity or a market. Things that are like kind of back to that Olympic example, things where they like, they see the competition over here and they go over there. I like those a lot. I think generally that means I'm going to have more zeros in my portfolio. There's more risk in that. But you know, hopefully the winners are bigger as a result because when they when you do get into a market where you don't have a lot of competition, you know, you can you can capture a lot more value and you can build a much bigger company. I look I look very, very closely at market validation. I, I don't like investing in just ideas by themselves. I look for companies that have established some sort of proof that they've figured it out. It doesn't mean that they like have you know twenty million or twenty thousand MRR and they're growing at fifteen percent month over month. At that point, you know, once you've got that, you know, there's a bunch of other investors who are probably there bidding up the asset, and I'm probably not going to win that round. But I'm looking for like just that first little whiff of smoke that they have product market fit, and the thing is about ready to go. You know, that's that's where I really that's that's really where I've tended to gravitate, trying to be after the sort of first money, but before the big VC money. But you know, beyond beyond that, a lot of it is sort of just like. Collecting the information, doing the diligence, talking to smart people in the field, you know, analyzing the opportunity. And then, you know, a lot of it is, you know, the gut of like, I believe in this entrepreneur. I believe in, you know, where this company is going. I have sort of a sort of, uh, I have a, an intuitive sense that I think this thing looks good because I've seen, you know, thousands of companies over the years. And, you know, that, that recognition is hopefully, you know, working well. So you've got the recognition. Now you're starting to build up the syndicate. Let's say it's back in branch time. How do you build the syndicate to where it is today? You've done a great job building up one of the top syndicates. Now that's just dumb luck. So, you know, early on it was... Well, actually, let me go back. It's not dumb luck. Uh, the secret to AngelList anyway is that angel investors on AngelList, they, look, they see a lot of deals. They see a lot of deals. And... That's great. They get a lot of they get a lot of liquidity and opportunities, and they can deploy their capital against a lot of different a lot of different opportunities. But in order to parse those deals, one of the one of the problems that angelist investors have is that they 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 don't get to really do the deep diligence. They don't get to meet the entrepreneur. They don't get to dig into all the details. Like they're they're operating at a, a couple steps removed from 
where the metal is in the business. And in order to basically compensate for that, a lot of them, I think justifiably and correctly, look at social proof. They say, okay, so I can't necessarily do the diligence myself. Who in this deal can I trust has done the diligence? You know, I can trust that the syndicate lead has done the diligence, but is there somebody else? Is there some other signal that's in there to indicate that this business is, that somebody's really gone in to make sure this thing isn't a fraud? And, you know, I was lucky enough that early on, I did deals with Greylock and Andreessen and NEA and Founders Fund and Resolute and, you know, a bunch of top tier VC funds. And so my, that enabled my backers to get comfortable with the deal because, you know, they're like, well, we like Zach. He seems like he might know what he's doing, but Greylock is in this deal and we know they do their diligence. So I can feel comfortable that this deal has been, you know, has been correctly diligenced. And so any VC lead that I talked to early on or any syndicate lead that I talked to early on, I just say, look, the most important thing is to make sure you get access to deals where there's strong social proof, because that helps your, that helps backers get over the sort of fear part of the equation around that diligence. But then after that, it was dumb luck. I mean, to, to have, I think Cruz was a big driver in a lot of the backers joining my syndicate. And, you know, to have invested in a company at a $60 million valuation and have it sell for over a billion dollars, you know, less than a year later. I mean, there, there's, no, there's no way, shape or form that that was anything other than just raw, unadulterated luck. And, but that helped. I mean, you know, people saw that and they're like, oh, Zach knows what he's doing. It's, you know, it's not clear that from the cruise investment that that indicates that I know what I'm doing. But a lot of people thought that. And so I ended up getting a lot of backers. And as I got more backers, I was able to write more checks and bigger checks. And then that sort of, that sort of positive cycle really started spinning and it enabled me to, to kind of get to where I am now. But so, so luck and doing deals with good VCs would be the two things that I would, I would point to as being really important for early syndicate leads. How do you network with the VCs? No, so I, I spent a lot of time sort of, you know, going to events and, you know, Getting in, in San Francisco, there's a lot of ways to basically connect with VCs. But honestly, I've found that the VCs, the deals that VCs give me tend to be garbage. Like even the people who are my friends, like the, the, at the point that they give me a deal, my radar just starts screaming uh, to be very afraid because whenever they give the deal to me, it means they don't want to put that money in themselves. They want somebody else to put in that money. Well, if it's that good of a company, are they really going to give me the deal? Like, Probably not. Like generally the deals, in fact, not generally, almost always the deals that VCs send me are their worst, crappiest garbage deals. And so what, I, what I've done is, is that for me, it's about finding the companies first, like getting to the company. I'll give you an example. So about a year ago, Kyle, the CEO of Cruise said, hey, you need to meet one of my buddies, uh, this guy Grant, who I think is wicked smart, who's starting a new company. Can you, can you meet with him? And so, you know, when Kyle says meet with somebody, I, I would say yes. And so Kyle and I got together, or Grant and I got together, and so he had built, his company was called SkySafe, which is an anti-drone technology. So basically, they have a piece of hardware that you can put on the edge of a, a secure facility like an airport or a nuclear power plant, or you can put it on a vehicle or put it anywhere you want. And if a drone flies within half a kilometer, basically, the, the device will recognize the drone, and then it will basically take over the drone using some of some black magic that they have. Uh, basically, they hack the drone. And then they can crash the drone or land it safely. So it's anti-drone technology. You know, and you know, the, the, the market for drones, obviously, is expanding really, really fast. There's tons of drones out there. 
But defenses against drones are, are very minimal. You can use eagles. You can use shotguns. You can jam them, which is illegal according to the FCC in the U.S. You can use other drones with nets, which doesn't work very well. But like, there's not a lot of ways to protect against drones. And you know, the damage that you can do with a drone and a pound of plastic explosives on it is you know, astronomical. I mean, you could do billions of dollars of damage with just one drone if you hit the right thing. And so I was, you know, I got really excited and, and Grant is wicked smart. And, and I said, hey, I want to do this deal. I want to, I want to help you raise money. He said he had talked to 20 VCs and got 20 no's. And I was like, I want to help. I want to, I want to help you raise this money. I want to invest. Like this, this company needs to happen. And I got really bullish about it. So he calls me up a few days later. He's like, hey, Zach, I got good news and bad news. The good news is Chris Dixon from Andreessen just gave us a term sheet. The bad news is your allocation went from, I was hoping to get 500 into it you know, went from 500 to 100. And I was like, shit. But the thing is, because I had been there and already started to make introductions and I had done the work, I was able to, to, to increase the allocation. I think we ended up getting 150 into that round. And after the company, after that round closed, I continued to basically try to be as useful as possible and introduce them to people and send over engineers and just do everything I could to be valuable to that company. And when we just did the round a little while ago, I was able to get in another, you know, 400, I think, four or 500. And just so by being valuable to the CEO, I was able to get and retain allocation. And so I generally, I generally don't focus on networking with the VCs. I generally just look for great companies before they get to the VCs and try to basically, you know, provide enough value that I'm able to basically be part of that round whenever that round comes together. That's the interesting thing about this world. And that's part of the reason I wanted to get involved is it's it's not a zero-sum game the the more you the more value you give out it seems the more value comes back to you from everything you see read hear about thoughts yeah i mean look this this business is is a a pay it forward business you have to basically be out there providing value and if you do that you know you get a lot of opportunities as a result you know that i've I mean, it's, it's about investing in people and it's about investing in companies with your time and your money and you know, being smart about that allocation of your time and your money. But you know, you, this, this business is, you, you, you give Travis $25,000 and it turns into $100 million. So you, know, you, you want to be, you kind of want to constantly be out there doing those investments and hoping to, to stumble into the ones that turn out to be the, the unicorns. I was talking to a, uh, a VC a couple of days ago for a podcast episode, Martin, over at Quest Ventures, and they were hours late on getting into Uber's seed round. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I didn't have my syndicate at that point in time, but I was talking to Travis when that round first came together. And um, I told him, I was like, look, I love what you're doing. I think this approach is amazing, but the tax unions are going to crush you. And I don't know if I would have invested or not. Uh, but I was, I was really, at that point, I was very fixated on the barriers to that business. And it really taught me an important lesson, which was when I see an entrepreneur who I, you know, I believe in, and Travis is he's that kind of entrepreneur. I mean, he is just a dogged, dogged entrepreneur. And I see a big market, obviously, transportation and the tax unions was really big. When you see barriers to entry, those barriers can both be bad because you can basically, they can prevent the startup from seizing the opportunity, but they can also be amazingly good. Because if you can get through those barriers, it's just a giant, awesome green field of opportunity on the other side of them. And you can build a ginormous business without a lot of competition. And uh, now when I see businesses where that's the case, 
you know, I get really excited. You know, I think Cruise is a good example of that, which is like, this is this giant technical problem. But I love Kyle. He's an amazing entrepreneur. And they had made a ton of progress. And the size of the self-driving car market, you know, trillions of dollars of value will accrue from that market, you know, really got me comfortable with taking that bet. Even though the technical problem of self-driving remains an unfully solved problem. But like just 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 that sort of when I when a great entrepreneur basically says, look, here's where I am, here's where I'm going, here's how I'm gonna get through these walls, I listen very, very carefully because those walls are are good in a lot of cases in terms of the potential returns you can get as a result if they can get through those walls. I would agree with a caveat. So the big the biggest difference I see, so what the problem the problem I see with Uber is they broke down the walls of being able to do this where you have people driving other people around. The challenge is it's very defensible or it's very hard to be defensible because any city can open up their own new network. They just need to raise money. They just need to get the drivers and the users. If you spend enough money, you can do it. Versus an Airbnb, which has a lot stronger viral effects because when I'm going traveling, it doesn't matter where I'm going traveling. But do you see what I'm saying? It's much easier yeah, for competitors. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, I think obviously, the, the, you know, Uber... There's a local, basically, um, there's a local market phenomenon with Uber where every market is basically relatively locally confined. You know, there certainly is advantages that Uber has where, you know, when I travel outside of the US, I always open Uber first versus the sort of alternative, you know, whatever the local, you know, provider is in that given market. That's one, but it's hard to know if there's enough international travelers for that to basically matter. But I think the other thing that does matter is that because of the scale that Uber has, they can use their profitable markets to fund their competitive advantage in their competitive markets. And they can drive down, they can drive down the sort of margin in those competitive markets and put a lot of pressure on any individual competitor. And so I think the like, I think that's a big deal. I think as like when, when venture capital starts to dry up for these, these companies who are trying to compete with Uber, Uber can basically pick them off one at a time and put a ton of pressure on them because of their global scale and the amount of revenue that's flowing through that platform. And, you know, they've obviously demonstrated that they're more than capable of doing that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm actually very curious to see what happens when sort of the, the venture capital starts to dry up as the growth starts to slow down in that market and how, how defensible some of these little small competitors are to Uber. What I think might be interesting is the Google Lyft deal. If you have driverless and Google mm-hmm. is the leader and yeah. they cut out Uber. But anyways, yeah. um, I'm yeah. going to jump into the lightning round now. How's that sound, Zach? Sure, go for it. What's the first deal you've ever done? Uh, the first company I invested in was Branch. The Series A was my first syndicate, and that was my first, that was my first private investment. Hell of a way to start. Good work out of you. Dumb luck. Biggest mistake you've made so far? Not getting into this investment game sooner. You know, in retrospect, I love it. And I should have basically tried to, I should have figured out a way to hustle into doing it sooner. The problem is that I was focused on being an entrepreneur. And, you know, like I said before, when you're focused, you're focused. And I certainly, when I'm focused, I only focus on one thing. And so I didn't, I didn't get into this business, but I kind of wish I had because I love it. And I wish I had started working on it much earlier. And it's fun. You get to work with lots of companies. Other than Uber, what's the biggest company you missed? Uh, So when Airbnb first started, I used to play poker with Nate. Like at the very, very beginning of of, um, of Airbnb, and uh, 
I would hang out with him uh, every now and then. Give, I would give him a ride home because he lived at that point. I think he, I don't know if he does now, but he lived in the mission and I would drive him home. And I remember, I remember like listening to the pitch and being like, this is a really interesting company. And, but the thing is, is like you had to use your imagination. But like, I remember being like, this is really interesting. Uh, I didn't have any capital at that point. So I wasn't in a position to invest. And I wonder in retrospect if I would have invested. But yeah, that would, that one, uh, early Dropbox, I was playing poker with those guys at the very beginning and similar thing. Everyone at the table was like, oh my God, Dropbox is the best. You guys all need to invest. And I didn't have any capital, so I didn't do it. I wonder if I would have done that. Yeah. So basically, you need to get in those poker games. The poker game was really good. I got a lot of exposure to a lot of great startups through those, those poker games back in the day. It was all YC kids, like in the early days of Y Combinator. Uh, and they all, we'd all get together at the, the Discuss office, which was where we, where we first started playing in, um, oh, I don't know, right? When, whenever, whenever Dropbox started, at the very beginning of Dropbox is when we used, first started playing poker. Before YC got too big? Oh, yeah. It was really early YC. Yeah, I mean, it was, had it been 2009, 2008? I don't remember. Long time ago. Money or mission? I don't really know how to think about that question. What do you mean? What drives you and what do you look for in founders? Um, money's just a way of keeping score. The impact that you have on the world and your ability to have a further impact is a function of the amount of money that you can, that you can generate from your business and the margin from that business and the ability to then redeploy that. So, you know, if you can't make money one way or another, you're not going to be able to, we're probably not going to have a gigantic impact. And so I look for, I look for entrepreneurs and businesses that have the capacity to generate vast amount of capital so that they can basically do big things and continue to generate vast amount of capital. But it's all about if they can, if they can do big things, they're going to make money and it's going to be worth a lot of money and you're going to win. So, you know, it's all about doing big things at the end of the day. Why see Techstars, AngelPad, 500 or somebody else? You know, I don't like investing around the incubators. I love the incubators. I think they do great work. And I've re- a number of the companies I advise, I've, I've um, recommended that they join the incubators. Uh, I don't generally invest in a company once it's in an incubator or after demo day until well after demo day, just because it's, I don't have a competitive advantage. I mean, if you go to, you go to YC demo day and you look out across that room at the hundreds of really smart, smart people, like, how am I going to be the smartest guy in that room? Except for maybe like a really narrow, narrow, narrow area and maybe ad tech where like I know that market better than anyone else in that room. Like, forget about it. Like, so, you know, I've invested in a bunch of YC companies, a couple of Techstars companies, a couple of 500 companies, but um, all of those had happened either before or after or well after demo day. I don't, I don't invest around them, but I think they all do great work. And I, you know, God bless them for for helping entrepreneurs through this hard journey. Mm -hmm. Who's the best entrepreneur in tech today and why? Outside of your portfolio, Uh, of course. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, the the two easy answers are uh, Jeff Bezos and Elon. I mean... Pick pick a winner. Between those two? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I got to say Bezos. I mean, it's just the track record's been longer. The scale is huge. He's managed to basically just build such a powerful engine. But, you know, it's hard to know. I mean, Elon is amazing. But I, I mean, there's still, there's still some uncertainty around what Tesla's doing. There's some uncertainty around kind of where they're going with, you know, SolarCity. 
that that would that would be those that if the if the Tesla if Tesla had the same scale as Amazon, I'd probably pick Elon. But because of the scale and sort of established nature of Amazon, I'm going to have to pick Jeff. Basically, Elon's smaller with more important businesses. Maybe I don't know if they're more important, but just just because he's smaller, I have to say that Jeff is just just a man. Okay, and that will wrap up lightning round. Now you're associated with Flight VC. How how that happen? No, no, not anymore. No, I'm never. I was associated with Flight for six months, but haven't been haven't been since. Uh, I probably should just shut down that syndicate. There's like the flight, the Zach at Flight VC syndicate is sort of still sitting there, and people think that I'm associated with those guys, but no, I I did um, I did. Uh, three or four deals with them. When I was first getting into AngelList, Gil was like, hey, you should work with me and I'll bring you the backers and uh, you bring the deals and we'll split, we'll split the carry. Uh, and so I did um, my first set of couple deals with them. Uh, but then uh, yeah, I haven't been for you know, north, of, north of two years now. Yeah, it's a pain in the butt to close the syndicates on AngelList. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I don't mind. It can sit there. I don't really care. Every now and then people back it and I send them a message. I'm like, hey, I don't use this anymore. If you want to invest in my deals, you got to follow me at, at Zach Coleus. But yeah, uh, yeah. But there is a misconception that I'm with flight. No, I haven't been with flight. Um, I haven't been with flight for over two years. I like them. I think they're great guys. I like Sean. I like Gail. They're, 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 they're good people and I, I enjoyed working with them. And I, you know, I, 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 don't have, I highly recommend if taking money from them because I, I think they're, they're great investors. Um, but but no, I haven't worked with them for a couple of years. At this point, you don't need the economics because you have the backers. Yeah, there's the, the yeah. It it, I, it 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 wasn't necessary to continue to work with them. Okay, last question: What's it look like? You find a company, you want to do a syndicate deal, you get people involved. What's all the legal back end paperwork look like that people never hear about, never see? I mean, it's pretty. Angelus does an amazing job with that. I mean, it feels like like everyone sort of asked me about my back office, and it, I'm like. Angelus is my back office. I mean, you know, they, the, 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 the real people sort of on the line, the people who, you know, Richard and Rhonda and Tyler these days, lately they're the folks who've been sort of doing the sort of heavy lifting uh, over at Angelist. They, they just pick up so much, so much of that heavy lifting. I mean, I, I find the company, I get the docs, the legal docs. I, you know, I set up the, I set up the lead node in the syndicate details. And then we, we you know, we send out the, the, we send out the message to the backers saying, Hey guys, uh, here's the opportunity. Who wants to join or not? And then they wire in their money into the SPV and then Assure, which is a sort of an independent entity from AngelList that sort of manages the, so sort of the custodian and the, the, the fiduciary behind all these SPVs. They, um, they collect all that money and then they, um, they review the docs, sign the docs, wire the company to the, the money to the company and do the rest of it. So yeah, from my perspective, it feels like I get a great deal. I don't have to do anything and they do everything. Pretty awesome. That's, that's pretty sweet. I know. I want to respect your time. I know you're incredibly busy. I want one bold prediction from you before we wrap up. Um, it's got to be bold. Go yeah. Back. In 20 years... The concept of work will be weird. Okay. I like it. That may, that may need to be our show title right there. Zach, I want to thank you for coming on. It's been awesome having you on. Where's the best place for people to say, hey, give you a high five, join your syndicate? Uh, Angelist. Anything. Angelist. We'll, Angelist. Have, we'll have links yep. in the show notes, guys. Yep. I, I'll, I'll, 
be happy to connect with anyone on AngelList. Uh, I'll let anybody into the syndicate. Feel free to message me on the platform. You know, I get a lot of messages, so I don't always respond as quickly as I should. But um, feel free to, to to shoot over anything. And uh, yeah, thanks to everyone out there who's been supportive over the years. It's it's an awesome privilege to to to, to be able to do what I do because of the folks who've, who've backed my deals and who joined me in this great journey. So I enjoy it. It's fun. Yeah, it makes the economics so much better for founders, for angels, for everyone. Yeah, so far so good. Awesome. Thanks for coming on today, Zach. It's been fun. And just let me know if I can help at all ever. Yeah, thank you. Have a wonderful day. And talk to you guys later. Cheers. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.